how Joseph must have felt there going away and he go to a place of foreign culture. They spoke a different language, a different type of lifestyle. He'd be like a commodity there. He's a slave there. I mean, he's like a beast of burden. He's like a donkey or a mule or, or like some type of livestock. He'd sell at auction. That's who he is. And so the first big disappointment in life was that by his own flesh and blood. His own brothers let him down and sold him, and now he's in a foreign land. But secondly, he gets down there, and God's hand is on him because he's a godly young man. He has a heart for the things of God. And so he's down there, and he gets a job. He's, he's brought into Potiphar's estate. Potiphar's one of uh, Pharaoh's chief officers there, maybe a military commander. And so uh, he's there and has a big estate. He's a man of some wealth. And so Joseph moves up through the ranks quickly there and becomes administrator of Potiphar's estate. I mean, it's a position of, 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 of great responsibility. He oversees other workers and the payroll and ordering supplies and, and probably a host of different things he's been found faithful at. He's been found a man of integrity and character. He can do that. And so he, he, he's doing well now in life. But yet, there's Mrs. Potiphar, Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's always away on Pharaoh's business, and she's there by herself. She's a bored, lonely housewife, and, and here's Joseph, a young man, a handsome young man in the prime of life. He's handsome, he's athletic, he's smart, he's clever, and she begins to make sexual advances towards him. Joseph knows that sin against, not only against his family, but against God as well. And so he slips out of his coat and runs away. He flees the temptation. He loses his coat, but he keeps his character, doesn't he? And so there's a big disappointment there because when Potiphar gets back home, he hears a story his wife tells. I don't know if he believes it or not, but he, you know, to, to save face, he has to have uh, Joseph thrown in prison. And so Joseph is put in prison as labeled as a sex offender. I mean, today in our culture today, I mean, that's, that's probably worse than being labeled as a murderer uh, to be labeled a sex offender. He's a, he's a man that tried to rape a woman is the story that was told about him, even though we all know it's not true. And so now he's put in a dungeon there. He's labeled as a sex offender there. I mean, what a low point in his life. But then God's hand is still on him. God still knows him. God still sees him. God hasn't forgot about him. And he begins to, he begins to be given responsibilities by the warden of the jail, the warden of the prison there. Sees he is a clever young man, smart young man, dependable, reliable, has integrity. He can be trusted. Uh, he can handle things. He can lead. And so he puts him in charge of some of the prisoners there. And remember, there are two who used to work for Pharaoh, the baker and the butler, who both got on the, who got on the outs with Pharaoh. They both wound up in prison, and they both had dreams. And Joseph interpreted the dreams. And one of those would be that the baker would, or the butler would be reinstated his old job serving with Pharaoh in the palace there. And Joseph said, listen, when you get your old job back and you have Pharaoh's ear there, be sure to put in a good word for me because I'm righteous. I haven't done this crime. Just remember me when you get restored back to favor there. Well, of course, what happened? The butler forgot about Joseph. Two more years go by. By this point, it's been 13 years have gone by in the chronology here from the time he was sold as a 17-year-old man. Now he's about 30 years of age. 13 long years have gone by. This isn't just having a bad day or a bad week or even a bad season of life. This is over a decade, 13 long years. And, but God still knows him. God still sees him. God still has a plan to be revealed to him uh, for the future. You know the story. There's a famine in the land. The famine's not just in Egypt, but the famine is up in the, the land of Cana as well. And uh, he interprets Pharaoh's dream about the good years and then the lean years. 
And then the brothers come down to Egypt to buy grain supplies because there's a terrible drought and famine up in the land where they're at in Canaan. They come down. They don't recognize Joseph because he's dressed as an Egyptian now. He speaks Egyptian language. He's older now, more mature. He's kind of grown up now. And they don't recognize him. He has a clothing, the style of an Egyptian at that time. And so uh, they, they deal with him. They barter with him. And finally, there's a moment he reveals himself to them. And he says, I'm Joseph, your brother. Of all the great stories in the Bible, that's one of the ones I'd like to have been a fly in the room and see their face uh, when he said that, I'm Joseph, your brother. And, of course, they're reconciled there. Jacob and his family comes down, lives in Egypt there. And, uh, but when Jacob dies, the brothers kind of come together in a, in a huddle here. They say, you know what? Joseph had been nice to us because Daddy's still living. But Daddy's dead now. Daddy's gone. Joseph is going to settle the score now. I mean, he's going to get even. He's, going, he's not going to get mad. He's going to, even, he's going to get revenge with us. He's going to get even with us. He's going to settle that score. And so they come and they say, listen, please forgive us. We, we're so sorry for what we did. And, and Joseph had forgiven them years ago for that. He had moved on from that. But he said this, and it's in Genesis 50, verse 20. Look at it, Genesis 50, verse 20. He said to his brothers, Joseph says to his brothers, he said, you meant evil against me. And they did. I mean, that he was sold as a slave was kind of the better outcome. Some wanted to kill him, wanted to lay hands on him and physically kill him. You meant evil for me. I think of what Jesus said when he was on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. These brothers, they knew what they were doing, didn't they? They knew exactly what they were doing, and they did it anyhow to their own flesh and blood. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Dear friend, when you're in a crisis situation in your life, when things go from bad to worse, remember the 50-20 principle. That is a Genesis 50-20 principle, which you meant it for evil, but God will use it for good. The equivalent of that in the New Testament is Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not that all things are good. A lot of things are bad, aren't they? But God will work it for good in his scheme of things. God is wise. God is all-knowing. Uh, nothing hidden from God's knowledge. He will work it for good in your life. Just trust him with that. Walk with him day by day. Yield yourself. Surrender yourself to him. And what is a bad thing, God will somehow use it for good in the big scheme of things. Because that's kind of the backdrop of Joseph's story, but that's not really what we want to see tonight. We want to see what happened later at Joseph's death and then what happened after he died. That's further than the chapter. We look down now at Genesis 50, verse uh, 22. We read this. Joseph de dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Now, remember, he was about 17 years of age when he went there. That means he's been there about 93 years. I mean, the bulk of his life has been lived in Egypt. I mean, he's so old now, 110, he can barely remember what life was like back in J uh, Jacob's household, back in the land of Canaan, what life was like growing up there in that land. He can barely remember that now because he's lived so long now, 93 years, he's lived here in the land of Egypt. And so now he's about to pass away. But he says this to his remaining siblings before he dies. He says this, and it's in verse 24. Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. 
The book of Genesis begins back in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? A wonderful garden that God provided there for Adam and Eve. It begins in a garden, but the book of Genesis ends with a casket, a death, a funeral is what it ends here with, a coffin. What a commentary on the effects of sin, isn't it? The wages of sin is death. It was immediately a spiritual death separated from God, but it was eventually a physical death. It's in our DNA that one day we will all die. And be set. the reality is only the work of the cross, what Jesus did on the cross, can overcome the effects of sin. And so the reality is he tells his brothers here, don't leave me buried here. When God brings us up out of this land, the land he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our forefathers, make sure you exhume me, my body, and take my bones and rebury them there in the promised land, the land of Canaan. What an unusual thing. And you think, well, you know, what does it matter where he's buried at? What, do we, what would he care where he's buried at? Because he's gone anyhow. But yet, he says, the land of promise, that land that God had promised, whatever, as far as your feet can, your, the soles of your feet move and walk on this land, it'll be the land given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land that God promised them that would be their land. And so this is the, the way his story ends here. That is, the, don't leave me buried here, but when you leave this land, when our people leave this land, Exhume my body in the casket and take me with you to the promised land. But now turn over to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. Now, 400 long years have gone by. You know what happened in that time? There is a new dynasty of pharaohs that have risen that did not know of the, of the goodness that, Jacob, uh, that Joseph had provided to the land of Egypt. A new pharaoh. And the nation of Israel has grown tremendously now. Hundreds of thousands, if not over a million of them, living now in the land of Goshen there in Egypt. And Pharaoh has subjected them to being cruel, uh, under cruel taskmasters to make them build cities and to build bricks for him and, and to build cities out of bricks that they make and all that he's done to them and persecuting the people there. He's afraid that they'll go to war against another nation. The Israelites will ally with that nation, fight against them. And so they have a plan here. Pharaoh has a plan that when the babies are born to the Israelite women. He tells the midwives, if it's a male, throw him out in the Nile River, the crocodile-infested Nile River. Throw him out there in the river. Let the crocodiles have him. If it's a girl, everything's okay. And that will thin down the population. That will reduce the population to a manageable size. It won't be a threat to Egypt. Here we see those in a long line of those who wanted to persecute the Jewish people. I think of Pharaoh here in Exodus 13, these early chapters of Exodus. I think of Haman in the story of Esther. I think of King Herod at the birth of Christ. I think about even in modern times today, we see on the news night by night, don't we, the, the hatred that people have to the, 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 the people that produced our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the race of people that produce him, how they are so hated today. We know from Revelation chapter 12, the great red dragon who, de, who, who, desi, who desires to devour the child that is born by the nation of Israel there, that would be the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so Satan's always hated uh, the people who have provided us with the Messiah, the one who, had, Genesis 3.15 says, would crush his head one day, crush the head of the snake. And so we see in Exodus 13 now, we go through Moses' time now, 400 years have gone by, and now they're about to leave the land of Egypt. We've seen the ten plagues unfold. All this are about to leave the land of Egypt, and they're rapidly leaving, they're quickly leaving. And the Bible says this in Exodus 13, verse 19. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under Solomon, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you when you go. They're about to leave, and they're having to leave quick. 
That's the whole matter of the unleavened bread. Just take what you can grab because, you know, as slaves, they wouldn't own a whole lot anyhow. I mean, just what they could carry in a knapsack on their back or just the clothes they were wearing. They didn't have a whole lot to carry anyhow because their slaves there were makers for Pharaoh. And so they're leaving now. They're leaving quickly at nighttime. The tenth plague, that was the death of the firstborn has occurred. And Pharaoh's finally said, get out of here, leave. And so they're about to move now. Maybe you've had a move like that. We moved here from Orlando, Florida some years ago. We came here. And, man, I tell you, I said, when I, once I got settled in here in Tifton, I said, man, I'm too old to do this again. I'm not doing it again. I mean, I'm not moving my stuff again. I, it's, it's hard to do that. Maybe you've done that before and you lost some things in the way. You know, something got lost in transit or, a, you know, it was in a box somewhere in the garage and you couldn't find it when you needed that type of thing. Or maybe you just forgot something, forgot one of the kids back where you used to live at or forgot the dog or the cat back where you used to live like that. The reality was it had been easier for them because they left so suddenly. With such short notice here, really the lily in the middle of the night, they leave, but Moses made sure to take the bones of Joseph. And for the next 40 years, until they settled in the promised land later under Joshua, for 40 years, someone will be responsible every time the camp moves. They would move and then set up camp, set up the tabernacle, worship there, then move again. 40 years of wandering there, every time they moved, somebody had to be responsible for carrying the bones of Joseph. I can just imagine, you know, we go in social settings sometime like that. Maybe you've been to a party or some type of social gathering, and sometimes we kind of try to peg, you know, somebody we hadn't met before, we try to kind of peg where they are in life and you know, how much money they make and kind of the social status. What do you do for a living? What do you do? And we kind of peg them what they say they do, you know. And so just imagine around the campfire one night, there's some Israelites out there, and uh, one of them says, well, you know, I, don't, I haven't met you before. What do you do? He says, well, I'm a soldier, you know, I'm, 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 one of, I'm in one, uh, Joshua's platoon there, and we fight, and we carry swords and spears, and we defend the, the people of Israel, we do that. I'm a soldier, I'm a fighter. Somebody says, well, what do you do? Somebody says, well, I'm a Levite priest. We help carry the holy things of the tabernacle, and we set it up, and we oversee the sacrificial system, all the sacrifices that are made, and, you know, we set up the holy things of God there in the tabernacle. We do all that. And we handle the spiritual life of Israel. We're a, we're a priest. What about you? What do you do? Well, see that box of bones over there? That's my job. I, I carry those bones. That's what, you, that's what you do for a living. That's what you, your whole responsibility. Yeah, that's what I do. I'm the guy that carries those box of bones. Every time the camp moves, I'm the guy that gets them and carries them, makes sure they get there. For 40 years, somebody did that. It's not named who did that. I don't know if it was a succession of people, a number of people did that. Uh, you, you don't need a committee to do that. You don't need to form a task force to do that. You just say, hey, would you do that? You, you take care of that for me. And a guy does it. And for 40 years, people did that. I don't know if it was one person or a, n- a number of people, but they carry the bones of Joseph. Every time the camp breaks up and moves again, they carry those bones. But now we move into 40 years later, Joshua chapter 24. It's at least, it might be longer than 40 years because uh, it was 40 years to the end of the promised land. This is the end of the time of Joshua. So here's where we'll read Joshua chapter 24, verses 31 and 32. Joshua 24, verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elder who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which became an inheritance of the children of Joseph. 
Back in Genesis 33, Jacob had bought a parcel of ground, which would be a burial spot, and now they finally reached the promised land, the land of Cana, and they finally buried the bones of Joseph there. Now, what are the lessons we learn? What are the lessons we want to see tonight from somebody spending 40 years or more carrying a box of bones? I mean, the, the flesh is already rotted off there. There's just nothing but bones left, a box of bones like that. And carry, what, what's the lessons we'll learn from that? I want you to see three things tonight. Number one is this. In the sight of God, promises that are made, vows that are made, it's important that we keep them in the sight of God. Notice when back in Genesis when Joseph was dying, some of the surviving brethren, they were called in there, maybe some brothers, maybe some nephews, all, they come in there, and he says, make a vow to me. Swear to me that when we leave this land, you won't leave me buried here. Wonder what's the big deal? What would it matter to him? He won't even know. I mean, he's, he's, he's going to be dead and gone. What does it matter? He knew the covenant that God had made with Abraham, confirmed to Isaac and Jacob. That'll be the land, people of Israel, that'll be the land of the Hebrew nation. And I want to be there. That's what I want to be buried at. And so for 400 years, we'd say, well, who's going to even know where his bones are? Who even cares? What's the big deal about this? They had to leave Egypt in a hurry. I mean, they only care what you carry on your back, maybe in a cart perhaps, but I mean, just the essentials is all it is. But they had made a vow that, yes, when we leave here, we'll make sure your bones get carried out. And it would be generations before that would occur, over 400 years, but they kept the word they made. Think of the vows we've made through the years. Think of the promises we've made through the years. I think of marriage vows have been made. Some of you have stood in a church, maybe right here at this very spot I'm standing at now. You had stood right here, perhaps, and spoken vows to each other, for better or for worse, in riches and in poverty, in health or in sickness, in life's joys or life's disappointments. Dear friend, you're married long enough, you know what? There's going to be some disappointments. There's going to be some sickness. There's going to be some lean times financially. There's going to be some worse every once in a while, even in the best of marriages. And so the vows we make, it's serious to God that we keep the vows, especially in relation to our family life, that we keep the vows we made. Maybe a commitment to God that we made. You know, I'm going to follow Jesus. I think of that night in the upper room around the Passover feast, the night before Jesus was arrested and crucified the next day, having the Passover meal, he says, one of you will betray me, one of you will deny me. They all say, no, I would never do that. I, I mean, who, who is it? Who is it? And Peter says, Jesus, I would never do that. I would never deny you or betray you. He says, you can count on me. Now, these other guys, I'm not sure about them. You know, their commitment's a little bit shaky, but Jesus, you can take it to the bank. I'm going to stick with you through thick and thin. And just hours later that night, around the charcoal fire in the courtyard, a servant girl said, you're one of his followers, aren't you? Your Galilean accent gives you away. He said, I don't even know the man. And not just once, not even twice, but three times. He denied even knowing Jesus of being associated with Jesus. Maybe you made a commitment to God. It was easy to make it here in the church where all your friends are encouraging you and Brother Steve and people are trying to steer you the right direction, lead you the right way. But on Monday morning, get in the workplace or get with those other friends, you know, get around with them and uh, and then it's easy to kind of back out of that commitment, is it kind of go undercover, kind of be low-key about the approach you have like that, and you kind of back out on your commitment you made to follow Jesus. Maybe a commitment to ministry you made, a commitment to serve God in some ministry. 
Hey, Brother Steve, you can count on me. I'll be there. Now, Steve, I don't know anything about your people. I know you've got a lot of good people here. I know some of them personally, a lot of wonderful people here tonight. People that love the Lord have a heart for you. It's good to see folks here tonight in church. But I know how most churches are. I know how my church is and how most churches are. On Sunday morning, you might have a lot of folks sitting in the pews on Sunday morning like that, hadn't you? But when it gets right down to it, you really need people. You really need people in the bind. It's a short list, isn't it, brother? It's a short list sometimes. At least it is for me. I think for a lot of guys it is. And so the reality is your commitment to ministry that I'm going to serve God, do whatever it takes, whatever needs to be done, whatever it takes for our church to go forward, whatever it takes to reach people, I'm willing to do that. Even if it means some discomfort, even if it means some inconvenience, I'm willing to do that. Your commitment to ministry here at this great church of Liberty Baptist Church. And so the vows we make, the promises we make, we might make them in jest or flippantly, but they're serious to God. The vows of our marriage and family life, the vows we make to walk with God, to serve God, to meet with Him day by day, have an intimate relationship with God, it's a serious vow. The vows we make to ministry that I'll serve, I'll, I'll take the position, I'll do that in church, I'll help you in that ministry. It's a serious thing. Eternity's on the line. I'm aware, you know, of our church and your church that for some people in our community here, whether they spend eternity in heaven or hell depends on what we do or don't do as a church sometimes. You know that? I mean, this, this is serious business we're in here. And so the vows, the promises we make to keep them, how critical it is. But number two, here's another lesson we learned tonight from the bones of Joseph, and that is this. You notice the names of the people that carried the bones are never listed here. There's no name revealed here who the person was that did this. There are thousands of names in the Bible, a lot of names in the Bible. Some major characters of the Bible you're familiar with, a lot of people you never heard of before because they have a very minor spot in Scripture, maybe just one appearance in the Bible. But they're all important to God. But these people are unknown, they're unnamed, but yet God knew them, and they were important to God. Now, here's the test of ministry right here, dear friend. Will I, be content, will I be content to serve God if nobody but God knows about it? If it's not recognized from the pulpit in the announcements, if it's not, my name's not in the bulletin, if a big deal's not made about it in, uh, from the pulpit or what the preacher says, if, if nobody knows but God, am I content to serve if nobody sees that but God? These serve for years in obscurity, carrying the bones of Jesus. What a thankless job that would be. I mean, it's not glamorous. It's not exciting. It's routine. We'd call it boring, monotonous perhaps, average, ordinary, routine thing. But they did it faithfully, and God saw, and God knew that. I think even the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was born there in a home in Nazareth, off the beaten path. I mean, all the big movers and shakers are down in Jerusalem or all the academics and philosophers, they're in Athens and Greece or all the power brokers, the military might, they're in Rome. But in Nazareth, later the question was asking, anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, there's nothing, they're not famous for anything. I mean, just a rural, off the beaten path village, obscurity. And for his, of his 33 years, Jesus lived 30 of them at least in what we call obscurity. I mean, we, we're introduced to him, you know, in his childhood there. We see glimpses when he's born, but really we begin his public ministry. He's about 30 years of age. I mean, what was he doing all those years? He is living there in the home of his not, his, not his biological father, but his legal father, Joseph, probably learning the, the trade, the skill, the apprentice of being a carpenter, 
making tables and chairs and furniture, doing that in obscurity. And life was hard then in the first century A.D. I mean, life expectancy was not real long then. But under the heavy hand of Roman oppression at that time, and life was hard then. He had a front row seat to pain and suffering and hardship and, and probably saw his father die. We're not sure about that. Don't want to say what's not in the Bible, but we do know that his mother appears in his adult life. His father's not referenced there. We can only assume he probably had passed away. He's seen pain and suffering and death, had a ringside seat for all that. Dear friend, he lived a life in obscurity those 30 years. And so he understands what it is to be faithful in obscurity. Even the Son of God, God in flesh, there in Nazareth. Sometimes God calls us to unseen, unknown places. Even sometime in church life, there are things that happen that aren't seen by the, most of the church family. I thank God for folks that work back in the nursery. And they're back there and they're caring for kids and loving on babies and trying to minister and, and love them in the name of Christ and changing dirty, stinky, smelly diapers or doing all that. I'm thankful for people that do that and have been called to do that. What a great calling that is to minister to the next generation. Those that do things like cleaning the restrooms of the church or mowing the lawn at the church or working the sound booth. I, I know how it is at our church that we take, we take for granted somebody's back there. The only time that they recognize when somebody's not back there is when it's not working right, when there's a lot of feedback or something. Everybody turns around at one time and looks at the people in the back. And so uh, thank God for people that are there that do that. You don't even recognize it when they're doing their job, but they're, they're faithful, and they show up service after service to serve the Lord. And so the reality is making an impact, the cause of Christ, the kingdom of God. I know many of you are involved in a one on Sunday nights here. Man, what a great ministry that is that Liberty has. You're touching so many lives in this area for the kingdom of God. And some of those kids come, some of them, the parents drop them off, probably if it's like any other church program, parents drop them off like that, and they come in and, you know, snotty those kids like that. Sometimes they're not real well behaved. But who knows? That little boy might be the next Billy Graham one day. Did you know that? That little girl might be the next Corey Tim Boom one day. Who knows what may become of that, that investment of ministry there that is done for the kingdom of God. My wife's sitting back here tonight, and she'll tell you that she grew up in a home, and her mom and dad didn't go to church. And her dad had a little convenience store, a little country store, just south of Hazelhurst, like you go into Alma there on 23, had a little country store, general store there, and they're open on Sunday. They work Sunday, so they didn't go to church on Sunday. But there's a little church around the corner there, a little free will Baptist church that that was welcomed them, and the two daughters, Angie and her sister, went to church there. And that church reached them and loved them and encouraged them and reached out to them. And now here, all these years later, here she is married to a pastor. Isn't that amazing how God uses stuff like that? Who knows what will come of people that you don't think anything will come of that. But one day something happens from that, that seed that was planted so many years ago. The Bible talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about that there's a body of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. I mean, you know, your head's the most important part of your body. That's why you know, motorcyclists, many of them wear helmets, or football players wear helmets because we're concerned about concussions, we're concerned about brain impact, that type of thing. We know, no, we know more now about uh, the long-term effects of concussions, that type of thing. And so the head's so important to protect that. The head of the church is, the, the head of the church is Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he, he's, everything emanates from him. He calls us shots, he gives us direction, he leads us. He is the bridegroom of the church. He, all of that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are all parts of the body. The Bible says we're all different parts of the body. And some are seen parts like your hand. You know, you wear jewelry on your hand, rings on your hand. You have ladies, you know, paint their, 
Can their fingernails do all that? But what about your foot? You ever think about your foot? I mean, the weight of the body's on, pressing on that foot all day. It's down that smelly, stinky shoe. I mean, you know, those nasty socks that could stand up by themselves in a corner just about. They're so nasty. And so what if the foot were to say, why can't I get some glory? Like the hand does. We shake hands. We wave at people like that. Different parts of the body with different functions. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, well, I'm not an eye, is it therefore not of the body? God has set the members, each of them, in the body just as he pleased. He's given every believer spiritual gifts to be used, and it's used in the context of a local church fellowship, and he has placed us in the body as he sees fit to do that. One body, but many members. Dear friend, I want to tell you what, to God, there are no big shots, no big people, no little people. There's only consecrated people and unconsecrated people. Brother Steve, that's the word we don't hear much in church anymore, is it? We used to talk about that when I was a kid growing up. We used to hear about a consecration to God, being dedicated, being set apart to God. We don't hear much about that anymore. Just consecrated people or unconsecrated people that God will use if we make ourselves available to him. I think of Moses when he went to Pharaoh. Finally went before Pharaoh there, and God gave him that rod, that, that stick of dead wood. That's all a rod is. It's just a piece of dead wood, a stick of dead wood. And the Bible says, you know, God gave him a sign there. He would lay it down. What happens? It becomes a venomous serpent, a snake. And pick it up, what happens? It becomes a staff again. It becomes a, a rod again. And when we first read about that in Exodus 4, the phrase is the rod of Moses. But by the time we get out of Exodus 4.20, we're reading about the rod of God. What was the rod of Moses became the rod of God. A rod is just a piece of dead wood. It's a stick is all it is. But he took what he had, it wasn't much, it was just a piece of dead wood. He gave it to God, and that became the rod of God. It was greatly used of him. I think about in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. And they did inventory. How, what do we got to serve them with here? We know in verse 9, they said, there's a lad here that has his lunch with him. He has five barley loaves and two small fish. I mean, it's like a kid's Happy Meal from McDonald's. It ain't much. I mean, maybe enough for a kid, but it ain't enough for a grown man like me let alone thousands of grown men like me. He had that small lunch there, five barley loaves. I mean, barley is like the poor man's, I mean, the wealthier men could before grain, but the barley is like for poor people like that. And two, it doesn't even say two fish, it says two small fish. I mean, just enough for a little kid to have just a, a snack, you know, is all it was like that. But in the hands of Jesus, little becomes much, doesn't it? The key wasn't how big the loaves or fish were, the key was it was in the hands of Jesus. Dear friend, take your little, what it is today. You say, well, I can't get up and preach. I can't get up and sing. I can't play a musical instrument. I, I'm not clever. I can't teach a class. Take your little and yield it and give it to Jesus. In his hands, little becomes much. Amen? Little becomes much in the master's hands. I tell you what, I'm preaching to you tonight. And I, you know, Brother Steve, you could have seen me when God called me to preach. Now, I'm not a real clever guy now, but I, if you had lined 100 guys up, I'd have been the dead last one you'd ever think that God would call to preach. Matter of fact, I thought it was a prank. I thought God was pulling a prank on me at the time. You know, surely it couldn't be me. I mean, I'm not a great preacher now, but I mean, when I, was a, when I was that age when he called me to preach, for me to get up in an English class in high school and give a five-minute oral book report is the most horrifying experience you can imagine. I just stumbled through it, couldn't hardly do it. But take your little and give it to God. 
and he'll use that. The key isn't, the key isn't how clever you are, how educated you are, how knowledgeable you are. The key is you take and give it to Jesus. Amen. Give your little to him, he'll make much of it. Give it to him, he'll make much of it. Three lessons. Number one, promises and vows are important to God to keep those vows, keep those promises. Number two, the names weren't listed. Well, I'd be content to serve God if I'm never publicly recognized. But here's number three. That was that Joseph realized this. Here's a big deal about this. Why, what's the big deal where you're buried at? Who, who cares where you're buried at? What's the big deal about that? He's already dead anyhow. Here's what it is. Joseph realized that Egypt was not his homeland. Now, at this time, listen, this is the height of Egyptian culture, Egyptian learning, Egyptian military might as an empire. I mean, it was a happening place. This is Egypt in its heyday. It's not the backwater desert spot it is today. I mean, it was a world, prominent world empire, prominent regional empire at that time in world history. And I mean, the Egyptians, they could do a barrel, couldn't they? I mean, we look today on the plains of Giza, the pyramids, which were burial places. I mean, they could do a burial like nobody else could. The embalming process they did was renowned. We talk about it even today. Then later, the Valley of the Kings, further down the Nile River Valley, and the tombs that were there. I mean, they could do a burial like nobody else. But Joseph had seen all that, but he wasn't impressed by all that. He just knew that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a homeland, the promises of God, the promised land. And so he looked toward that land that would be the homeland of the Jewish people. Later in Hebrews 11, we read this. It's God's hall of fame, God's hall of faith that we see in Hebrews chapter 11. And it says this about Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed what he was called to go to the place that God would give him as an inheritance. Remember, when God called him to go, he said, just go, and I'll show you where to go. Isn't that the craziest thing? I mean, you're at your house. You're loading all your furniture in a U-Haul truck. The neighbor comes over and says, well, where are you moving to? God says, I have no idea. I'm just gonna, we're just going to get on the road and go to the place God shows us. Crazy, isn't it? Abraham did that. He had a good life there where he was at. But he leaves that and goes and follows the calling of God. He went out, it says, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, dwelling in tents. I don't mind going on a camping trip for a couple of days or maybe a weekend, you know, staying in a tent. I'm really kind of more of a hotel guy. You know, I like the air conditioning, the mattress and all like that. You know, I like indoor plumbing, that kind of stuff, you know. But I'll, I'll, I'll camp for a couple of days, you know. But for the rest of your life, Living in a tent, I mean, that'd that get, that get old real quick, wouldn't it? But he did that. And Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him with the same promise. Why? Here it is in Hebrews eleven ten. He waited for the city who has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. It was not an earthly city. All the great world empires of, of, of Egypt and later Babylon and Persia, and then Greece and Rome, all this. It was impressive. It must have been impressive in his heyday, but yet he had... He was looking to a faraway place, a prepared place for a prepared people, the homeland that had been promised to the people of God. Later we see Isaac has that same desire. We see in, in Hebrews 11, verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning the things to come. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph and worshiped and leaned on the stop of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, verse 22, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. Here we read it in Hebrews chapter 11, the bones, of, the bones of Joseph once again, by faith, he saw a homeland prepared for the people of God. 
Dear friend, I think of that place he's prepared for us. It's a prepared place for a prepared people. And today we have nice homes we live in. I pray you have a nice home to go to tonight. You have a nice, comfortable bed to get into tonight. Maybe sit in a nice, comfortable recliner and watch TV. And you got a kitchen there, refrigerator full of food. We, we have a nice place to go to tonight. We're thankful to God for that. He gave us the strength to work and to provide that. It's all of him. It's all of his goodness and grace and mercy. He did that. We're thankful tonight. But dear friend, don't get too settled there because that's not our permanent home. That's just where we're staying at for a little while. Thank God for it. It's a wonderful place. Maybe you've been there for decades, but it's not your final homeland. It's just where you stay at for a little while. Several years ago, we went down to Jacksonville, Florida. I grew up in Jacksonville on the west side. Uh, this is late 1960s into the 1970s with my childhood. And back then, we grew up on Commonwealth Avenue on the west side. Back when I was growing up, that was kind of a nice neighborhood, middle-class neighborhood. It was a good place to raise your kids, a lot of good churches around there, some good schools around there. It was a good neighborhood to live in. And all these years go, go by. We moved away from there when I was about 16 years old in high school, moved away from there. And now all these years later, 40 years later, we're taking our kids back, and we're down in Jacksonville to see my sister, and she lives there. And we said, well, we'll go by and see the old home place. Go by and see where we used to live at, where we grew up at. And so... It wasn't too far away, so we drove over there, and we, it's a four-lane street now, a big wide street, so you can't really stop in the middle of the street. So we pulled in a church parking lot across the street, and we looked at it, and my boys had never seen it before. They said, you used to live in this neighborhood? You grew up here? I said, I did, but it didn't look like this back when I was growing up. I mean, today it's the kind of place in the neighborhood, there are more hoods than there are neighbors in the neighborhood nowadays. I said, it didn't look like this when I was growing up here. How did it change like that? Neighborhoods do. They change over time like that, especially in urban areas like that. Dear friend, that's not my home, is it? That's where I grew up at. I've lived other places through the years, places we've moved in ministry, different places we've lived at. I've got a wonderful place to live at now. But the reality is that's not my real home. It's just where I'm staying at right now. My home is in heavenland that God's prepared for me. I think of John chapter 14. Jesus, I mean, he drops this bomb on the disciples. This is the night before his arrest and the trial and then the crucifixion the next day. In these later chapters of John, he shares about what's going to happen there and gives them some parting counsel and advice. He says, I'm going to the Father's house. Uses that word over and again, the Father's house, the Father's house. In Jewish culture, when you got married, you didn't move across town and build a house. You just kind of went back to the Father's house and maybe build a room on the side or built maybe another wing on the side and all lived together, different generations under one roof on the Father's house there. And so Jesus says, I'm going to a place, I'm going to prepare a place for you. This one who was a builder for 30 years had learned making furniture as an apprentice. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's going to be the Father's house. He says, that's what a wonderful place is going to be for you, a prepared place for a prepared people. And he goes back there to prepare that place. You know, I think of what he did, this, this world we live in today, how beautiful it is. It's been marred and scarred by sin. And man's pollution, man has not been a good steward of the environment for so many reasons, but we see the way our world is today. It's still so beautiful. You see a sunrise or a sunset at the beach or a sunrise or sunset in the mountains. The world still has so much natural beauty, all that we see around us, that God made that in six days, six actual literal days he did that. I think of that place. He's been preparing for 2,000 years. Wow, what a place that must be. Matter of fact, John has the vision of the Revelation in a John, a Revelation chapter 21 and 22, he sees the new heavens and the new earth. It's like he can't even 
muster up the language. Some things you can't even describe with words, can you? You just want to say, wow. If you're trying to describe a sunrise at the beach to a blind person who had never seen that, and you're having to use words to describe it to a blind person, how would you muster up words to do that? How could you do that? It'd be hard, wouldn't it, to, to encompass all the beauty that it is. John sees this new heaven, new earth. It's like he just wants to drop his jaw and say, wow. Wow, words can't even fully describe what that is. Dear friend, the word is don't let your affections get settled down here. This is not our final home. You on vacation, you usually stay at a hotel. Maybe you stay at a hotel a couple of days. You're staying at a hotel for a week. You don't go in and change all the furniture, do you? You know, buy new comforters for the bed, put new wallpaper up. You don't do that because you're only going to be there just for a few days. Don't get too tied into this world system, dear friend. I know we have to work a job. We have to pay bills. We have a mortgage. We have to raise kids. We have to do all that. But don't let your affections be too drawn into this world system because we're only here for a little while. What's a profit of man to gain the whole world? Lose his own soul. And so the reality is our homeland that God has provided for all of us. I heard a wonderful story. I've used it a couple of times in funerals, Brother Steve. It's a great story. I think illustrates the reality about what lies beyond for the people of God. It's a small town, and two men who are about the same age later in life, older men, were both about to pass away. They're both near the end of their life about the same time. One was a rich man, lived in the biggest house in town, had a big mansion, had garages full of expensive luxury cars, house full of expensive paintings and antique furniture, and had a boat on a nearby lake and had a huge financial assets and portfolios he had, all that. The second man never made much money, lived kind of on the other side of the tracks, had a more modest home, smaller home, had an old car, kind of old jalopy out under the carport there, and didn't have a boat anywhere like that, just kind of a more modest man, didn't have a whole lot of money saved up. But both of them were near death about the same time. The wealthy man didn't know the Lord, had never been saved. The poor man knew the Lord and had walked with him for many years and had a great love for the Lord, the things of God. On his deathbed, the rich man said, I'm leaving home. I'm leaving home. I'm leaving home. But on his deathbed, the poor man was saying, I'm going home. I'm going home. I'm going home. Joseph knew and all life in the fast lane of Egypt, I mean, culture was there. Any kind of entertainment was there in Egypt. All the fine things of life were there. The consumer items were all in Egypt there. I mean, it was the epitome of culture that day. But Joseph knew, even though most of his life had been lived in Egypt by far, that was not his home. His homeland was somewhere else. Joseph's burial was not the end of the story, was it? It's maybe only the end of the first chapter of the story. Because for the people of God, it's eternity beyond that. With the Lord who loves us so much. He loves us, and the proof of how much he loves us is the only man-made thing we'll see in heaven one day. The scars in his hands and feet from the nail print. The prints there from the nails and the spikes in his hands and feet. It'll be the only man-made thing in heaven we'll see one day. And that'll be the evidence of proof of his great love for us. What a great master he is. What a great savior he is. He's mighty to save. Dear friend, I want to encourage you today. Maybe you think your ministry's little. Maybe you think you're little enough. Family of God, people of God. There are no little people, no little ministries, only consecrated people or unconsecrated people. Have you made some promises and vows that you need to reconfirm tonight, to revisit tonight, your walk with God, your family, your marriage, your 
ministry here at Liberty Baptist Church. You need to solidify those commitments tonight and rededicate yourself once again to being faithful to the commitments and the vows you've made. You need to do that tonight. Maybe you need to realize tonight it'll be enough just to, just to serve if I'm known of you, God, that you know this, you see this. Whether I'm mentioned from the pulpit, whether my name's in the bulletin, whether people talk about me, just that I'm serving you, it's enough, Father, just to serve you. What a great and awesome Savior you are. You love me like nobody else ever loved me, and the cross is proof of how much you love me tonight. And then to think about our homeland, that we're so tied up into the things of this world, our affections are often here and getting more and acquiring more and having more and, and being more known in the community. Dear friend, we need to direct our hearts and our affections and our allegiances towards the things of God and what lasts for eternity. If it's here and now, what is it? It's wood, hay, and stubble consumed by the fire. But if it's done for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God, it's an investment in eternity in the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Let's pray the Lord right now. Father, speak to us tonight by your Holy Spirit. Lord, speak to us in that still, small voice to hear what you want us to hear tonight. Lord, to get ourselves realigned with you tonight, Father. We, just like our car needs to be realigned every so often. So our souls and our spirit, we need to realign ourselves with you every so often. Be revived and renewed and refreshed in our walk with you, Father. Speak to us tonight by your Holy Spirit. Draw people to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Draw them tonight to the Savior, the one who loves us like nobody else ever loved us before. Father, help us to realize that even the ministry of carrying bones, if you've called us to that, it's a great calling. It's a great ministry. It's a great job you've given us, Father, to be faithful. Lord, help us just to be faithful, just to show up every day, Lord, just to, just to clock in and clock in, just to be here every day, Father, to do your service you've called us to us, Father. We pray. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, if you will stand now for this time of invitation, as Brother Steve's here. If you have Sunday, you can come to the altar tonight for prayer. Come to Brother Steve for prayer tonight. You respond tonight as God prompts your heart in this moment of invitation tonight. 109. We sing I Surrender All Now. What a great song of consecration. Are we where God's called us to be? If not, do that. Be obedient to the call of God on your life.
so much for just marinating it or digesting it. Thank you, Lord. I'd if I said it wasn't. God never wastes anything. All of these things. All of them. One person ministering to another person. Let's continue as we go through this week to just connect with the Lord. Connect with the Lord through Brought the question. Looking forward to made the statement on Tuesday that Hearts and minds clear before we dismiss. Father, again, we thank you for tonight. About how Joseph was so much going to go home. Had that same opportunity to go through to our home in heaven, dear God, but only through your blood and sacrifice on the cross that he acknowledged that. Thank you for the ones here tonight. Hearts of light that they would